Welcome to Theology Thursday, an ecumenical space for students to discuss matters of faith and theology. I'm your host, Connor Grubbs. And I am your co-host, Ryan Mock. And I'm your co-co-host, Johnny Grubbs. Hey, uh, so this is the first time that we have done an episode not during one of our official seasons. Um, Season four will be starting in August. So we're kind of taking a break right now, doing some stuff behind the scenes to get ready for that. Uh, But in light of recent events, uh, it became apparent very quickly that this was something worth talking about and that we didn't want to wait on. Uh, You're seeing this being filmed and recorded, or maybe you're hearing it, uh, in our new uh, space for recording these podcasts. Um, And it's not finished yet. There's a lot that we're doing to try and, you know, up the quality uh, for season four, but we just wanted to go ahead and ad- address this with the equipment that we've had and that we've been using for the past three seasons. So um, we're not, you know, quite ready uh, from a technical standpoint to be making new episodes. But this was just so important; we didn't want to wait. Um, you know, this is when it comes to uh, race issues and things like that. So many people address it from purely a political standpoint. And, and they view it as purely a political issue. And I've, I've said many times, this is a kingdom issue. Um, and sure, politics and these different things play a part in it. But at the end of the day, uh, if this was purely a political issue and I wasn't a Christian, I don't think I would address it. Um, as a Christian, and, and this is another thing I've said, that, that white privilege means that as a white man, I have the option to ignore this. I would argue that as a Christian, I don't. As Christians, we don't. Um, so we're all in a state of learning, and we're planning on having some people on the podcast to come and teach us some things. Um, and and we're continually going to be in a state of learning. We're not claiming to be the experts on this. We never do claim to be the experts on any of the things we talk about. However, um, the church has to talk about this. It is the Christian church's responsibility to speak out and stand for the oppressed. That's God's heart, and therefore I want that to be my heart. And I put up a short Facebook post about this when all of it started, just because a lot of black voices that I really respected, a lot of mentors and friends in my life were saying, hey, we've been talking about this forever. (laughs) Um, We need white people to say something about it. And so I just said something. It was very simple. Um, I was shocked at the response that I got. I don't think I was ready to see how many of my friends on Facebook uh, or people, not even friends on Facebook, just anybody that found my post. I mean, how many white people who claim to be Christians are blatant racist? I was not ready for that. Um, And I've never really spoken on this before because I'd been kind of, indoctrinated in that mindset that this is a political issue and I don't speak to political issues we've made a commitment even though oftentimes before and after recording a podcast we'll talk about political issues to not talk about that on the podcast and that's still a commitment that we're holding to again we're not addressing this as a political issue because it's so much more than that um, so anyway I say that to say I finally was like yeah I can't stay silent about that it's a simple Facebook post I mean that's like that's nothing. I mean, that's barely scratching the surface of what we need to do. Um, but I was just really surprised. And I think that might be part of the reason that a lot of people 
well-meaning and well-intentioned people choose to stay silent because and we were talking about this before even with Ryan like just being surprised at the different responses um, that people get um, and that people have um, and not wanting to maybe lose friends or relationships with friends and family members but honestly if people are are choosing this as a hill to die on and they're not willing to learn or or, or change their perspective, I'm not sure that that's a relationship that's worth pursuing much anyway, because some people, as I'm learning, are just so set in their minds about this. We want to continue to learn and to grow, and so um, Johnny has a lot of stuff that he's going to share just based on different books and things that he's read and learned over the years, and we're, we're going to discuss that and hopefully continue to engage this uh, in, a, in a healthy and an open-minded way, but I just say all that to say this is kind of the first time that I've chosen to speak out. And I've, man, I've just been shocked at the response from people who claim to be Christians. Um, it's just just bizarre to me. Absolutely, yeah. I, I you know I um, I save these tweets because I think it's important. You know, kind of my first exposure to um, to this conversation, at least on a deeper level. You know, I think. And Ryan was kind of mentioning it earlier when we were talking beforehand. It's like, I guess I've always kind of believed and had the perception of systemic racism, but maybe not have like all the details articulated and mapped out and in my mind and in my heart. And I think that's where I was for a long time. And, and um, Phil Fisher, and I, I'll go ahead and reference it. Um, it's now called the Holy Post Podcast, but I th- and I think that retrospectively they've called it that too. But episode 267 of their podcast um, is called Race in America, and I encourage you to give it a listen. I'm going to kind of go over some of the things that are from that and from other places. But that was when I first realized, you know what, this this is a systemic issue, and nobody's no. I mean, because it's a systemic issue, nobody nobody's tried to say, hey, we need to fix that. <laughs> you know, there's been there's been no. Um, and despite people of color coming out and saying, hey, listen, systemically we are oppressed, and there is such a thing as white privilege. Um, nothing has nothing has really changed in that. But anyway, he did this episode, and this is what he said recently. This is a summary of numerous conversations that I've had over the last week. This is Phil Fisher on Twitter. Um, from the other side, from people, his constituency, why do you say black lives matter? Are you a Marxist? And then Phil Fisher said, no, I, I said it because it's true. And then the other constituency would say, why, why not say all lives matter? And Phil Fisher said, because we're bringing attention to a group of people who have suffered serious injustice for a long, long time. And the other side says, but if we bring attention to them, they'll feel like victims. And Phil Fisher says, I'm pretty sure they already feel like victims. Being victimized for 400 years has that effect. And there's this kind of long, awkward pause. And then the guy goes, well, I like VeggieTales. I'm sad you become a leftist. <laughs> and he adds to that um, in parentheses, the sound of my head banging against the desk because he he would say I'm not I'm not a leftist and like we said it's not, I, and I read those tweets to say this is not a political issue this is an issue of truth and then Christian responsibility and Jesus said quoting Jesus he said the truth will set you free and there cannot be emancipation from systemic racism there cannot be emancipation from subversive racism if we don't look the truth in the eye face it and then ask okay what what can we do to be a part of it and before i get into any of this i have to say like i will never understand what it's like to be black in this country i'll never understand 
what it's like, you know, to go exercise, say, you know, I ride my scooter, so I'm not going to say oh, go for a run, right? But I know I have friends, you know, and they'll say, who are people of color, and they'll say, well, you know, like, I want to know when my husband's going out to, to run, to exercise, and I want to know when they're coming back. When I say I'm going on my scooter, you know, Sue Ellen's kind of like, okay, you know, like there's not really right. an issue of, hey, is somebody going to bother me or, um, you know, I mean, there are people who are afraid of going outside their house. I'll never understand what that's like. The only reason I'm speaking out is because this is a human issue. It is a Christian issue. And we need people um, from both sides of the equation, both white people and people of color, acknowledging that there is a problem um, and that we need to stand united against this. And unfortunately, I think in a lot of Christian circles, uh, there's churches that, you know, are predominantly white and predominantly black. And unless, you know, a white person starts the conversations, the majority isn't going to have it. Right. Um, and so I, I think as pastors, as ministry leaders, people need to address this. Um, and again, if you're somebody who I don't talk about politics in the pulpit great you still need to address it because that's not what this is mm-hmm. um and so uh yeah so i'm just going to give one example today i because like carter said we want to we want to interview other people other perspectives and get this kind of understanding that is from pastors and leaders that are wiser than us yeah. um and and before you get i just we want to learn and and one of the things i want to really encourage you to do and and you know, encourage myself to, I've been encouraging myself to do as we go through this, as I think that we often become very defensive, like, I'm not racist. I'm not racist. I don't hate anyone. And, but you're not doing anything about it either. And we've all heard that, well, if you're not doing something to fight this, then you're part of the problem, that kind of mentality. What I really just want and it would help, I think, if you define kind of the idea of subversive racism versus systemic racism. Um, don't be so quick to be so defensive because maybe without realizing it, there are certain patterns of behavior and thought in your life that are racist. And and I think for a lot of us, because we're just born into it, we don't always recognize that. And that's something. So could you kind of talk about the difference between those two things? Yeah, I'm going to be bold here, though, to do it. I mean, uh, subversive racism is really kind of looking uh, things like white privilege in the eye. Subversive racism is is, um, having somebody explain why um, we, we have benefited as white people from systemic racism whether not that we did it on purpose but just that we have and somebody to look at and say try to defend themselves against it or say well no no, no I, I i didn't benefit from systemic racism and all these kind of things it's 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 kind of looking at the facts and trying to defend their morality when their morality is not even really being attacked mm-hmm. and what it does is it says i'm not listening it it, it creates a problem yeah yeah, it's not it's not calling an individual's morality into question. It's more saying, okay, this is history, mm-hmm. this is facts, and you know maybe it's your ancestors' fault, maybe it's you know, generations before you, but what are you going to do about it? Because it's here, right? And like when slavery and stuff was that was like addressed, like I mean, obviously there were some people who were slave owners who were saying, okay, you know, they had a choice to make, but at the end of the day, like. This is this is how reform has come throughout history. We've never said, "Oh, that's not my problem." That this this thing was created by my forefathers. Well, yeah, but you're you're alive now, and and as believers, we have 
an obligation and a calling, even a joy to bring the kingdom of God, which is a diverse and, and beautiful place, you know. So I, I think in Revelation, you know, I look to Revelation when John looks and he sees all that will be in the kingdom of God when it comes in its fullness. And he, he specifically says, and I saw a great multitude of people from every tribe, tongue, people and nation. And so he is aware of race and of color, even in the kingdom. So the kingdom is diverse. And so we have to embrace this diversity and love it and cherish it as a beautiful thing. And if, it's, if, if there's division, if there's unrest, if there's not peace, we as believers have a direct responsibility to encourage it. And that's such a huge part of the reason why, like, biblically, theologically, Theology Thursday, theologically speaking, the idea of colorblindness doesn't work. No. Uh, God's not colorblind. There are God-given attributes of every culture that are to be celebrated because they are part of God's creation, and they will be celebrated for eternity. They're retained in the kingdom. Read it. It's yeah. in Revelation. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and everybody's going to be there, and it's going to be awesome. We get to celebrate each other's right. cultural differences, and it, it becomes this one big, beautiful picture of, of praise and of worship and of God's glory. So... Um, yeah, I don't want to the colorblindness thing. We don't even need to go there because it's just it's dumb. And I, uh, I would recommend a resource before I get into this too, like too far into this. If the words white privilege irks you, or if the idea, even what I said, that we have inadvertently benefited from systemic racism as white people, if those sentences irk you, I, I get it. But I encourage you to start as you look into resources. First of all, be willing. Are you willing to look at resources and try to understand our history? Um, you know, even as far back as 400 years ago, but even more recently, and we're going to start in the 30s today. Are you willing to do that? And and a great book to start with is White Fragility, and it just kind of explains why we get defensive. It kind of gives credence to that. But then it also explains why we shouldn't get defensive as as white people. How we should try to how we should understand this issue a little bit more broadly and constantly be willing to learn why systemic racism exists. And I think, honestly, that's the first hurdle we have to overcome right now in this country yeah. is getting past, is just admitting, wow, you know, there is a disparity. That's what, you yeah. know, there's a disparity between what it means to be a white person in this country and what it means to be a person of color. If we can start there, <laughs> um, and I, I, it's hard to get people there. It's hard to get people to admit there is a disparity. Which is yeah. crazy because I'm about to share why just historically there is. Yeah, it's really hard. Um, I, and and I think just starting from a point of we're willing to learn is so important because, man, I, I, I yeah, I mean, go ahead. But yes, I've just, I again, I can't stress, I, there probably will be listeners of this podcast who are angry that we're even release, releasing this. Right. Um, <laughs> and we may lose some followers. I just don't care at this point. I, I don't understand why... People are still so set in their ways. And you know what? We haven't talked specifically about the recent events, but I want to go ahead and address those just because sure. I I've seen a lot of people talking about, well, yeah, but uh, George Floyd had a criminal record or he was high when this happened or blah, 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 blah. Um, and there have been times in the past where we didn't have videos and we didn't know the whole story. Uh, and so I, in some of those instances, I kind of listened to that argument. With Ahmaud Arbery, by the way, not even law enforcement that time, uh, you know, as, as we all know, um, w w with these things, there's videos, okay? We, we watched it. We, we, we watched it happen, 
And let's assume the worst about George Floyd for a second, just for the sake of argument. I'm not. I'm just saying for the sake of argument, let's assume that he was high and that he knew that that was a forged check. He was unarmed, he was unaggressive, and he was killed. And then some people go, well, we don't know that that was a race issue. Maybe some people, okay, yeah, he, he was murdered and what the cop did was wrong. But that wasn't. That doesn't mean it was racist. Maybe he was just a violent cop. Maybe he was just an aggressive cop. Um, and I think what, what you were saying earlier is, yeah, but the fact that he even had that opportunity comes from a history of systemic racism. Yeah, systemic racism put him in that situation. So even if we could argue that Chauvin isn't a racist, you know, that whole situation was created because systemic racism exists, you know. And he was at greater risk, just even statistically, because of that. Right. So, the minute the cop showed up. So, and again, it's this idea that the truth will set us free, that we can have freedom in the truth, and I just look at mm -hmm. facts, and that's all I'm looking at. Right. And, and the other thing I want to address just about that specific situation, just because part of the reason we're even making this podcast is I want to make it clear, you know, what, what my thoughts are moving forward, and if, <laughs> if you don't like it and you don't want to listen to the podcast anymore, God bless you. The other thing people keep saying... It, you're just talking about like statistically 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 that is a hard word for me today um and that made me think everybody starts throwing around these statistics about black on black crime and all these things first of all the percentages don't really work there because there's less black people in america than white people anyway and then people also talk about well white cops killing white people it's true there is police brutality that has nothing to do with racism it's just people with ptsd who you know haven't been getting psyche valves and that needs to be dealt with too but it doesn't change that you're, you're change those are separate and and real issues right but it's changing the subject and especially people because i see this so often is throwing out well the black on black crime you're more likely they're more likely to be killed by somebody of their own skin color in their neighborhood okay but what we're talking about is people in authority who have taken an oath uh, to protect people mm -hmm. who who have again privilege. Um, so you know that black on black crime and then just police brutality, you know, of people in the same race. Those are both you know conversations that need to be had, but they don't negate this one. Right, and and I would also say some of those statistics that try to push that kind of narrative don't negate. You know, they're not mutually exclusive to the other statistics about black <laughs> right. incarceration. Like, the other statistics still are true. So, they're, they're and, and I don't have them right in front of me, but if you watch episode 267, it's called Race in America, Phil Fisher podcast. He actually breaks down all the statistics uh, about, um, like, incarceration and other things that show you that things are skewed. Mm -hmm. um, and but that's not really what I wanted to talk about today, so that's why I'm not prepared to. Um, no, and I, you know, again, much bigger discussion. But I just, I, I, the reason I wanted to kind of preface this with that is just to say, you know, this is where we stand on recent events, and this is why this is important to talk about because a lot of people throw out these arguments to say oh, we don't even need to be having this conversation. Well, yeah, we do. We do, and it's, it's honestly, it's been a long time coming, and I even feel like apologetic for not being more bold about this when mm -hmm. I, I, um. Because I know this is such a hot button issue, the most I've done in my five years um, of like being a pastor in student ministry, I've worked longer in ministry. But over the past five years, the most I've done is sit down with my students and watch that basically that podcast. And we went over the statistics and we went over why it's important for Christians to be aware of these things. And um, I had several students um, uh, kind of push back and 
Um, other students had questions, and it, it all ended civilly, but I was like, okay, I, get, I got that off my chest. <laughs> you know? Right. And yeah. it's like... I, 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 <laughs> I haven't spoken much about it either, and we've never talked about it on this podcast, so those are things that we definitely apologize for. Um, I think what everybody's seeing on either side is this is a crossroads. People are fed yeah. up. It, it's enough's enough. And I, I would love to redeem this moment as a, as a moment where the civil rights movement, a new civil rights movement can emerge. You know, mm-hmm. And I think that's the hope of a lot of people, that this doesn't just die out, um, that this actually turns into legislation that corrects some of the problems that have been created by systemic racism. Yeah, and w- which we're already seeing some, some positive things happening in that area. So Right. 1933, okay, we're facing uh, a housing shortage and the federal government begins a program explicitly to increase uh, America's housing stock. But it's also was uh, a way, uh, they saw this opportunity to form uh, a segregation that was so deep-seated that despite people on both sides, there would still be this kind of subversive segregation that still exists today. By the way, I mean, just a sub-note, I mean, people talk about black-on-black crime. Some of those neighborhoods exist because, some of those bad neighborhoods, quote, exist because of this legislation that I'm about to share. So it's like, mm-hmm. historically, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's, it's a white-caused problem. Um, so the housing... Uh, programs under the new New Deal were like basically state-sponsored segregation. Okay, and here's why: the Federal Housing Administration, uh, which was established in 1934, uh, they they furthered these segregation efforts by refusing to insure mortgages in and near African American neighborhoods. Okay, this was a policy known as redlining, and they gave these high incentives and tax breaks. Um, to whites for getting houses, for taking out mortgages. This was to stimulate the economy, to get things going after depression. And so all this stuff is kind of happening. And But in the meantime, they're also creating legislation to make sure, you know what, we're not going to insure mortgages near African-American neighborhoods. Um, and this is a policy known as redlining. Maybe you've heard that word before. It's, it's a hot button. Uh, issue, and I'm gonna explain more why it's called redlining in a minute. That's not really the point. Um, at the same time, the Federal Housing Administration was subsidizing builders who were mass producing entire subdivisions uh, for for whites, with the requirement that none of the homes be sold to African Americans. Mm-hmm. This is at a federal level, <laughs> yeah. so these subsidies are coming. But hey, listen, don't sell to people of color. Um, because they're going to create a liability, and I'll get to that in a second. What, why they thought that? Um, they actually didn't have a reason. But okay, <laughs> uh, in, in the book um, *The Color of Law*, which is by Richard Rothenstein, I mean, he kind of basically kind of breaks down uh, redlining and some other legislation that has not not intentionally been undone. We've said that the, the the results of it might be wrong. I don't think anybody would agree that segregation should exist, or or you know that there should be a classism that is so black and white. Um, but Richard Rothenstein says that these decades-old housing policies have had a lasting effect on American society. Uh, his quote, quote from his book, the segregation of our metropolitan areas today leads to stagnant inequality because families are much less able to be upwardly mobile. I don't know if you've ever heard that term, but upward mobility is just your natural, based on like the family you were born in, your ability to move your way through the economy, at least up to the middle class, if not into the upper classes. You know, So it's this idea of being able to move into a place of really comfort and safety in you know neighborhoods here in the United States. 
Um, so they were uh, less able to be upwardly mobile when they're living in segregated neighborhoods where opportunity is absent. If we want a greater equality in society, if we want a lowering of hostility between police and young African-American men, we need to take st steps to desegregate. So the, the argument today is, well, segregation, we share bathrooms now. We share water fountains now. Segregation doesn't exist anymore. No, there, we, we, we came a little bit further down the, down the line, but the biblical word for justice, which is mishpat, means to make straight. And I've used this analogy before. I'm, I'm using it with my students now. Um, we could, if, if, the, if racial equality was a signpost, we might have made it a little bit straighter over the years. <laughs> Slavery is gone. All right, bringing it back up. Um, segregation in the sense that there's, we don't use separate bathrooms. We're not separated at football games. Okay, it's a little bit straighter. But as long as segregation exists, as long as some of these other things exist, we have not achieved biblical justice, mishpat. We have not made straight this signpost of racial equality yet. Um, and we have to admit that. That's step one. All we have to do first <laughs> is to admit that, you know, that, that, we, that desegregation is still necessary and that segregation still exists. Any thoughts so far? I'm following. Okay. I'm following along. So here's the Federal Housing Administration's justification back then. It was that if African-Americans bought homes in these suburbs, or even if they bought homes near these suburbs, which I'm not going to get into that today, this afternoon, because I, I only have so many notes and I don't want to labor long in this, but um, they made it really hard for um, blacks to even come near these neighborhoods, creating a huge commute for a lot of uh, potentially successful people of color. It was hard for them to get into the factories and some of the stuff that were booming at the time because they were so far out and it was all very intentional. And by the way, <clears throat> if you're wanting to learn more and get into more details, all the links to all these books, to that podcast uh, the Holy, by the Holy Post, all that stuff's in the description. So go check it out. The Federal Housing Administration's justification was that if African Americans bought homes in these suburbs or near them, the property values of the homes they were insuring uh, would go would go down, and that the white homes they were insuring would also decline. So basically, they thought they were going to be putting loans at risk, um, and uh, specifically for being insured. There was no basis for this claim <laughs> whatsoever uh, on part of the Federal Housing Administration. In fact, um, African Americans were coming to the table offering. Which is wrong that they even had to do this. They were offering to pay more because they they didn't have many options. Mm. Um, they were offering to pay more um, to live in these nicer neighborhoods um, than the whites were simply because their housing supply was so restricted and they had fewer choices. So this rationale that the Federal Housing Administration uh, used had never based on any kind of study. It was never based on reality. It was based on racism. It was based on racism. <laughs> yeah. It's called a spade a spade, right? The term redlining comes from the development by the New Deal, by the federal government, of maps of every metropolitan area. While these maps aren't like specifically enforced anymore, um, they are still used to this day. If you're a, a realtor in certain areas, they're used in the sense that you know which areas are redlined and which ones are not. Now, again, you don't have to make sure that people buy in a particular neighborhood, but we're aware that this, is, <laughs> this was a yeah. thing because um, there are maps that are used in realtor associations and uh, in certain states, I was talking to somebody who works in realty, and they were talking, "Oh yeah, I know those those codes, those maps are still still out there." Um, wow. Those maps were color coded um, by the first homeowners loan loan corporation, um, and they were later adopted by the Veterans Administration. None of that really matters as much as these color codes were designated or designed to indicate 
where it was safe to insure mortgages. Safe, right? That was a relative term. And um, anywhere where African-Americans lived was red. And then there were other color codes for different, um, basically, classes, you know, middle class and so forth. Um, so that's, I say all that to say, that's where that term, it's one of the places, because this is just one example. Mm -hmm. But it's one of the places that systemic racism comes in, right? Because what I've established here is that there's still segregation, all right, so that's systemic racism. <laughs> you know, segregation is systemic racism. It's caused by a system that has yet to be repaired. Um, the term white privilege comes from the fact that while there are exceptions to this rule, most of us were not born in red zones. Mm. Because, well, we certainly none of us were, because we're white, <laughs> you know. Um, and that, that there are exceptions to that rule. I, 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 you know, I've worked with students over the years, certainly, that... Um, where it was flip-flopped, but that is the exception to the rule. And I will add to that, that for example, um, you know, in the past I've worked with students that are white but live in, you know, red zones basically, you know, if you were to pull out a map and find, find that out. And they're in similar situations that a lot of, um, you know, predominantly black communities are in. Single parent home, uh, you know, they're exposed to drugs and other things like that, and uh, that causes behavioral issues. But many uh, people will refer to those kids as troubled kids because they're white right but if those same kids were black in a black neighborhood they probably wouldn't say anything because what they're thinking is <laughs> it's because yeah. they're black or grow up in a black neighborhood um and, and i've experienced both i've experienced just kind of a silence like oh you know those kids we need to you know and then i've seen this oh this oh this compassion you know because those kids are troubled you know there's a difference between a troubled kid Anyway, sorry. I, I just I feel like I have to say that I have to make that differentiation, even when there are exceptions to that rule, right? Mm -hmm. um, there's still this different look based on the color of somebody's skin. Um, so, um, so anyway, that that that's the idea. So that's why white privilege comes in. Most of us are born because of blatantly racist legislation are born into a, a place where we have a greater capacity for upward mobility. And you could say, well, they still have a capacity for upward mobility. You know, everybody has, you know, some level of upward mobility. But, you know, my analogy for that is it's like finding out your great-great-grandfather through a person of color into a pit or anybody, you know, threw somebody into a pit. And they're down in there and you discover them and you're like, you know what, I need to help that person. You have a rope, you can pull them out, you can... Uh, you can fill the hole, you can kind of be done with it, uh, but instead you throw down a ladder that's in 250,000 pieces, do it yourself, put it together. You know what I mean? Like, there's a difference in the amount of effort and struggle that it requires <laughs> to right. be upwardly mobile when you are born in particular neighborhoods uh, where many people of color um, do come from. And so, um, and I gotta be careful how much, like I said, I'm learning and I would love if there are people of color listening and say, hey, I prefer you use this term or I, I actually, you're wrong about this, you're, this is how it is. I'm, I'm totally willing to learn, but I think that that is, that's where it needs to start for us. It's like we're, we're, because we're born into white privilege, because we're born without this um, education automatically of segregation and how it still exists today, we as specifically as white people have a responsibility to educate ourselves to listen to our black brothers and sisters and to learn from the past so we don't repeat it 
any longer. And so I say this with all humility. I'm not trying to be like, oh, you know, I know everything. In fact, I would be ignorant saying all this stuff if I didn't say I haven't arrived. I'm still learning about how this works. But I'm aware of some of the facts and you can't you can't deny it. You know, it's just it's the way it's the way the system has been rigged um, against people of color. And so that's why I think that there's pushback. People people are like, what about all lives matter? You know, well, I mean, if you if you do that, if you kind of it kind of promotes colorblindness at that point. And if you do that, then you remove conveniently, you remove some of the white problems, <laughs> you know, like we don't have to face the music as white people and then we also kind of you know but we kind of look like we're supporting people of color right Uh, for the the great majority of of the people who are saying black lives matter of course all lives matter that's a given right right so so that's not that's not the conversation at hand it's we're speaking out for a community that has been overlooked and oppressed for a very long time yeah the reason black lives matter that terminology exists some people again they equate it to politics and stuff like that it exists because you just saw from history the rhetoric the the message that this country has been sending it's not anti-american to say this the message that this country has been sending is that black lives do not matter at least not as much as white lives right and and there might be certain people who have taken that tag and 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 made it the mantra for a certain political movement or maybe even things that i wouldn't necessarily agree with or support uh, but but that statement by itself is so true and so needs to be said yeah. regardless so and I think out of, you know, if you look at everything, obviously I do believe that black people have have suffered the most, but people of color extends beyond that, you know. Mm-hmm. There are other there are other brown people in this country that are that are struggling, you know, including, you know, our Hispanic community, uh, our Muslim community, and I'm obviously right now we're talking about um, you know, black lives and and specifically that history, but um, this is going to spark a wider conversation. Uh, how do we handle? I mean, the reality is, if we if we keep going at the rate we're going, there is going to be a browning of America, and it should be a welcome thing. We're not going uh, going to be a majority, you know, mm-hmm. in a few thousand years, and so even maybe a few hundred years, and so we we have to. We, this is an issue we have to address. You know? Yeah. Yeah, and, and 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 as Christians, again, I just keep going back. This is I don't engage this as a political issue. I engage this as a kingdom issue because I know there's going to be every tribe every tongue and every nation um so it's it's not it's not something we have an option to ignore and and to admit white privilege or to admit that we've benefited from systemic racism it is not saying that you are an immoral racist you as an individual and that's where (laughs) white fragility really comes in is we think our own morality is being attacked and really um, that's American individualism. You know, if you look at biblical, uh, even biblical culture, the biblical Hebrews and the Jewish people, they viewed themselves as a collective. You know what I mean? And so if one person hurt, the whole community hurt. And if one person had a problem, it was a community problem. And so if our ancestors created a problem, we, we need to be part of the solution, you know, yeah. simply because we, are, we should be a collective. But this individualism, again, stays. so nobody's attacking you and your morality as an individual. Uh, we're just trying to figure out, okay, what what has the collective response been to, um, you know, people of color in this country, and how can it change for the better? Yeah, Ryan, any thoughts? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I haven't really said much at all in this episode. That's because I am in a position of learning, and I don't know a lot. Uh, so my, my encouragement to you, or what I, what I urge you to do, is just humble yourself. Um, even if what we're saying attacks uh, you, what you've believed for a long time, to go into this topic with an open mind, uh, to show humility in that, uh, I think that's important. Yeah, for sure, and and, and to not also also not and to not attach these these issues to a specific political party, mm-hmm. right? Like too many people like owe their allegiance to a certain political party today. Actually, for the past over you know a hundred years, this is this has happened uh, with political parties, and that just needs to stop. We're not we're not attaching ourselves to a political party here by saying these things. Uh, we're just saying these are kingdom issues. So just keep that in mind. Yeah, and and I, I think Johnny and I both echo what you're saying is that we are in a, a stage of learning, and, and we need to always be. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the only reason that maybe we both had a little more to say is maybe we've been researching this a little longer. Yes, than they, they, have, know, but, they know a little bit more than I do. But so. we're not, we are not experts. Uh, <laughs> we're, we're learning... And we want to keep learning. And that's why the next few episodes uh, will really be us sitting down with um, other black pastors and leaders in our community um, and just having these conversations of, okay, you know, uh, what does this look like? Really hearing it from their perspective and kind of flipping the table. You know, usually uh, we're taking questions and answering them. That's kind of the format of the show, but now it's, it's going to be our time to sit back and ask a few questions. And so I'm excited about those conversations. I think they're going to be really good and really important. And, um, if you've gotten through to the end of the episode, then hopefully that means that you haven't unsubscribed to us. (laughs) You're going to join us for this journey of, of learning, which is really what this whole podcast is about is it's a, a space for students to discuss matters of faith and theology. We're students, and we're just letting you join us for a journey. Remember, all these resources that we've talked about today are linked in the description below. If you decide to buy one of those books using those Amazon links that we provide, actually kind of helps our channel uh, and our podcast a little bit. So uh, if you decide to do that, thank you. And uh, we look forward to being able to talk more soon. Y'all eat.